Amen. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Jason. Worship team. Uh, good morning. It is super good to see you all here this morning. Uh, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you can join us this way, but also recognize that we need to connect. So if that's you, you're watching online or you're listening to this later in the week, uh, please let us know um, if we can connect with you. Um, those of you who are here, uh, glad to have you here. We are going to land um, a sermon series that we've been in together now for several weeks. Uh, the sermon series is entitled The Dawn of the Church, and what we've done is we've spent a lot of time in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 2, looking at these early moments in the Christian church, um, looking for things that we might glean from their story, things that will help us with our story, things that will help us evaluate um, where we're getting it right as a church, and also to look at areas where we might need to recalibrate or make adjustments. And uh, just this past week, on Tuesday evening, um, our elders met with our leadership team. We do this once a month. And we walked through each week of the sermon series and just said, okay, now from your perspective, give, give us feedback. We walked through um, the power of the church, the Holy Spirit. We walked through the message of the church, the gospel. We talked about the devotion that the early church had, to the apostles' teaching, to uh, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, the prayers. Uh, we talked about pressing in in biblical community, creating rhythms for our lives that, that allow us to be at the same place at the same time, but also making sure we don't miss one another on a heart level and that we're truly showing up and connecting with one another. And so really thankful for that time with our, with our leadership team to give us feedback. Um, as we've gone through this series, we truly don't want to just be hearers of the word. We don't want to just go through this series and go, well, that was a great idea. I'm glad we did that. Like we want to come out the back end transformed as a church, more in line with what Jesus has called us to be. And so really what we're going to do today is we're wrapping up Acts chapter 2 with the last two verses, kind of asking the question, what's next? Okay, so we focused a lot on what we do in here and who we are to one another. What about the rest of the world? What happens next? And so today we're going to be talking a lot about this idea of living the mission in our everyday lives. And so we're going to start in the book of Acts. We're going to land in uh, the book of Romans chapter 10. Um, but let me just back up for a minute. There are some words we use often here in our context. And I want to just make sure we're clear um, on what we mean when we use words like worship, community, and mission. You hear that anytime we, we roll through our vision statement, gathering together in worship, growing together in community, then living the mission in our everyday lives. So here's one way to think about it just to help keep, keep it clear in our minds. Um, worship is essentially what you aim your heart at in life. It's so much more than what we do in this room. Okay, and when we talk about worship as Christ followers, what we're talking about is aiming our hearts upward towards God. That's our worship. It can happen in here, but it can also happen while you're washing dishes this week. When you aim your heart at God in gratitude and exaltation and praise and adoration, when you aim your heart, your affection towards God, that's worship. Okay? Now, when we talk about community, what we're not talking about is just the geographic community around us. We've been talking about biblical community, the community inside the church. And so when you hear biblical community, I want you to think about this is where we aim our hearts at one another. This is where we turn towards one another. We aim our hearts towards one another in brotherly affection. Right? We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and our soul, and do what else? Love our neighbor as ourself. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about mission. So what do we mean? This is where we aim our hearts towards the rest of the world. This is where we aim our message towards the rest of the world. And one of the mistakes that we make in church in general is when we hear the word mission, we think about an event or a trip. 
And so it's really important for us at Solid Rock to talk, when we talk about mission, to talk about the mission of our everyday lives. And that's really where we're going today. We're going to land, hopefully, uh, in a really practical and helpful way to bridge the gap between, okay, now I know what I need to do, but I don't know how to go do it. But ultimately, where we're headed today is this idea and understanding of a lifestyle of mission, that you would live the mission in your everyday life. So if we go to the book of Acts and we back up, we've been in Acts 2, but if we back up to Acts chapter 1, uh, these are... Uh, the moments before the church launches. So the church launches in Acts 2, and Acts 1 is where Jesus kind of gives his final words to the disciples. And in Acts 1, uh, verse 8, Jesus says this, you, speaking to the disciples, will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, how do we know when that happens? What kind of power are we looking for? And he tells them, Here's how you'll know when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in power. You will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, but not just in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is saying, when my Holy Spirit comes, the church will launch and you will aim this message, not just at your neighbor, Right? Not just here in Jerusalem, but that message will be aimed at what? At Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And so the mission was given to the church really before the church even launched. And so what we see in the very next chapter is the Holy Spirit comes, Acts 2, Pentecost. The disciples are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up and begins to preach a sermon. And he begins to point the people towards Jesus as the Messiah, the one who came, the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. And at the end of his sermon, about 3,000 people believed his message and were baptized that day. So the church goes from like 120 to like 3,200 just after one sermon. And so at the end of Acts 2 then, these these 3,200 believers, here's what we read about their daily rhythms, about their daily lives. Verse 46 says, and day by day. So what the scriptures are telling us is this is what life looked like in their everyday life. And day by day, attending the temple together. We're doing that together. We're gathering in worship. Oh, and we're breaking bread in their homes. So we're meeting outside of this space. We're, we're sharing our lives with one another. There's a space for your life to overlap my life. Maybe we would even have a meal in one of our homes together. But not only that, They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, praising God. Hearts aimed at God. Hearts full of worship. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Hearts aimed at one another in brotherly love and affection. And the Lord did what? He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord didn't add to their number every Sunday after Peter preached. Right? Day by day, here's what they did. They met together. They shared meals together. They had glad and generous hearts. They praised the Lord together. Hearts aimed at God. Hearts aimed at one another. And when they lived this way, God added to their number. How often? Day by day. Out of what they were doing in their everyday lives. 
So when you follow the story of the church, what we're going to find is that in Acts 1, you've got about 120 followers of Jesus. By the end of Acts 2, the church is up to over 3,000. Just two chapters later in Acts 4, listen to these words. This is verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So persecution is hitting the church. Who's involved in it right now? The captain of the temple, the priests. Be listening for that in a minute. And the Sadducees, verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening this is where you would expect the church to begin to lose some momentum oh now we're facing opposition ah it feels like the world's against us look at verse four but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about five thousand you're probably closer to ten thousand total people here just two chapters later And what we're going to see is this pattern. The more that the church encounters resistance and persecution and hardship, the more this thing grows, multiplies, and increases. By Acts chapter 6, we read this in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. The word of God's going out. Remember the mission? Take it out. Take this message out. And as the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there was a period of time where the early church was focused on Jerusalem. We're focused on Jerusalem. We're focused on Jerusalem. But you remember what Jesus' command was. To take this gospel message to where? The ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. By the very next chapter, actually before we leave chapter 6 in the book of Acts, the church has grown and the needs were just such that the apostles couldn't meet all the needs. So they began recruiting deacons to come and help serve the people in the church. And then one of those deacons, Stephen, who's a recent recruit in chapter 7, gets arrested. And, and he's told by the authorities to recant his faith. And instead of recanting, he stands up and preaches this powerful sermon. It's one of my favorite recorded sermons in the Bible. Stephen, this newly recruited deacon, just blows up this this message and preaches Jesus to his opposition. At the end of chapter 7, they put Stephen to death. Chapter 8 begins here. And Saul approved of his execution. What's interesting is in just in a few chapters, Saul is going to be radically saved by Jesus. And he's going to go from being a terrorist against the church to now his heart is aimed at God and aimed at the people and aimed at the ends of the earth. He's going to become the leading missionary throughout the second half of the book of Acts. But at this point, he's leading the terrorist opposition against the church. Saul approved of his, Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles and so here you go okay now church is probably going to lose some steam now some momentum like persecution is heated up now they actually just killed one of the church leaders they killed Stephen Saul was there had written approval from the government to drag Christians out of their home and sentence them to either suffering torture or even death And now we read what? What happened to the Christians? They're scattered. 
So now you'd expect the church to lose some momentum, like stall out, like surely it's not going to keep growing. Look at what happens. This is still in Acts 8. Verse 2 says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Man, sounds like the story's about to come to an end, doesn't it? Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. So what Jesus commissioned them to do in Acts 1-8 finally starts to happen in Acts 8-1 through persecution. And now the Christians are scattered, and as they go, what do they take with them? Their witness. They take the message with them. Where are they going? Oh, Judea and Samaria. That sounds familiar. Where did Jesus tell them to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And when we would expect the church to begin to fold or falter or fail or stall out instead of what? It keeps growing. It keeps increasing. By the time we get to Acts 9, the next chapter, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. It's not shrinking, it's growing. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what happened to it? It multiplied. It didn't diminish. It didn't stall out. It kept growing. By the time we get to Acts 11, we read this, 19, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen were connected to what happened to Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to anyone except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They started to hear about what was happening. Look at this. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Go check it out. Go see what's happening. We know what's happening in Jerusalem, but we're hearing about things happening outside of Jerusalem. Barnabas, go. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were what? Added to the Lord very next chapter chapter 12 verse 24 but the word of God increased and multiplied chapter 16 verse 5 so the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers how frequently daily you starting to see this in your mind what's happening like Acts chapter 2 3,000 coming to the Lord in one day right that becomes normative that wasn't a one-time event wasn't like the, the, you know, a bottle rocket revival experience that trailed off. Like if anything, the church is gaining momentum. It's growing. It's increasing. It's multiplying. Acts 19.20 says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily by the time we get to Acts 21 verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believe and that word thousands is that that greek word where we get myriads that's used in revelation to describe the people of god myriads thousands among thousands among thousands tens of thousands now 
believers in just a short amount of time, just a few decades. So what we see is out of these hearts of worship, in verse 47 of Acts 2, that they praise God together, and they, and they aim their, their brotherly affection at one another. What happened was this life of mission. And it wasn't left up to the apostles to live the mission. It wasn't up to Sunday mornings, right, to further the mission. The mission was furthered. It was multiplied. It increased how often? Daily. It came out of their daily lives. Day by day, the Lord added to their number. It's estimated on the conservative side. So this is happening. The church launches somewhere around 32, 34 A.D., by the end of the first century, the number of Christians is somewhere around a half a million. From 120 to a half a million. By the end of the second century, uh, we're up to two million. By the end of the third century, up to five million. It's said that by the time we get to the 18th century, there were over 200 million Christians alive on the earth. That doesn't count those who had passed away before, alive in real time. And by 2010, it's estimated two billion Christians live on the face of the earth. That's one-third of the earth's population. But if you go back to like ground zero, 120 believers praying, waiting on the Holy Spirit. If you look at the earth's population at that time, that number of, of, of 120 represents, listen to this, 700 thousandths of 1% of the earth's population. That's point zero 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 seven. That was the percentage of the, of, the, of the earth's population that were Christ's followers. And by the time we get to 2010, we're at 33%, a third, two billion. Can I just like say something that, I don't know that this will jive with our church historians. A lot of effort has been given over the centuries to pay attention to what we call revivals. And so you may be aware of like revival movements where it seems like something happens, God is up to something, begins to kind of stir some things in the church, affections for him, uh, humility, a confession of sin, and the church begins to grow and explode and multiply. And we mark these seasons or these moments in the church with the word revival. And it's like all the rest of the time when we're not in revival mode, we're in waiting mode for the next revival. And when I read the book of Acts, it looks like it was nonstop revival that revival maybe is actually the, the normative, not the exception, but the thing that God is doing. And any other time, right, something else is going on. When you look at how the Lord has multiplied the church, even in the midst of persecution, I mean, fierce terrorism, persecution and suffering, the church continues to grow leaps and bounds. So rather than getting excited about when revival happens, I want to get concerned about when it's not. I want to ask the question, like, what, what can we do, God? What, what, what do you find within us, God, that can be changed or modified or redirected? What needs to happen here so that we can be a part of this mission of the church? We look at the early church, we see they had this love of Jesus, this deep affection and love of Jesus. It seems to have happened, like, immediately even before they have the words to describe it. This love of Jesus that overflowed in an affection for their brothers and sisters in Christ that compelled them to live this mission in their everyday lives, to take the gospel into their communities, their neighborhoods, their workplaces. It was just happening. It was the overflow. Not only that, what we see, the early Christians were marked with just hospitality, 
They were marked with compassion for the poor and the outcast. They led the way in the world to, 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 to end poverty and to take care of widows and, and those who couldn't take care of themselves. Matter of fact, by the time you get to the 14th century, there's a Roman emperor, emperor, emperor by the name of Julian, and he says this about Christianity. And he's speaking to his fellow Romans when he says, Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the Christians care not only for their own poor but for ours as well while those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. You look at the first four centuries of the church and the things that Christians were willing to do, not just for each other, but for others. Like it caught the attention of the authorities. The Roman emperor emperor is looking at this and saying, wake up Romans, look at what the, the Christians are doing. There isn't a needy Jew anywhere. They're even taking care of ours. There was a period of time where, especially in a Roman culture, um, to give birth to um, a young girl was almost disgraced. Like you, were, you wanted boys, you wanted boys. And, and so oftentimes the Roman culture would discard the baby girls out at the, the trash heap. And one of the things that Christians were noted for was, was actually hanging out in the most disgusting and just like the most vile place within their culture and community just for the sake of rescuing these little baby girls. And even if one of these little babies didn't make it, they would, they would actually provide like a proper burial. They gave dignity to this little creation. And these kinds of things caught the attention of the people around them. It wasn't that the Christians were making a difference in the world. These early Christians were making the world different. You hear the difference? They weren't just having an impact on the world. They were changing the world. In the book of Acts chapter 17, there's a scene where um, the authorities are, are trying to arrest some of the key Christian leaders who are preaching this gospel message. And so now they're going to the homes of the people who would allow them to stay there. And they go to a believer, his name is Jason, to his house looking for um, the apostles. And Acts 17, 6 says this, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting at them. Listen to what they were shouting at these Christians. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I mean, even their adversaries couldn't ignore the fact that this gospel message, something was happening through the church that was changing the world. Now, we're going to go to Romans chapter 10. And what I want you to think about is by the time we get to Romans 10, Paul, is who's writing this, remember who he was in Acts 8.1? He was Saul. He was leading the persecution in Acts 8. A few chapters later, he's radically saved by Jesus, becomes a leading missionary in the church. Okay? Now by the time he's writing to the Romans, he's looking back on this early church experience. He's able to put words down to describe what was happening and how it happens. And he was calling the church to, to wake up and to once again start living this mission, start spreading this message. And look at what he says in Romans chapter 10. We'll, we'll start in verse 11. 
first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna quote the scriptures. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Really, that's where we need to start this morning. Do you believe what he just said? That anyone who puts their trust in the Lord will not be put to shame? Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? Like, do you truly believe that if you tell your neighbor about Jesus and your neighbor's like, okay, I'm in, I believe, I'll put my trust in, do you believe that the Lord's gonna save your neighbor? Or be like, eh, not that one. Keep, keep trying. Yeah, he's got a bad attitude. Nobody in the HOA likes him. Like he doesn't even mow his grass on time. Like do you believe that? Like if you actually share the gospel with somebody and they choose to trust in Jesus, do you believe that God will not put them to shame? Because if we don't believe that, there's really no need to go to the next few verses. But if we believe that, and we say, yes, I believe that is true. If my neighbor calls on the Lord, he will be saved. If my daughter calls on the Lord, she will be saved. If that person at work who, who just keeps coming over and talking to me, if that person calls on the Lord, I believe that they'll be saved. Then if I believe that, these next few words are gonna land really heavy on me. Because here's what Paul says. Okay, good, I'm glad you believe that. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? I believe it. If my neighbor calls on the Lord, he will be saved. I believe if my coworker calls on the Lord, she will be saved. And Paul's like, okay. How are they going to call on somebody they've never believed in? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching, proclaiming, talking? Okay, we're not, not describing what I'm doing up here specifically. We're just talking about you proclaiming a message with words. You, you said you believe that if they call on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. Well, how are they going to call on somebody they haven't believed in? And how are they going to hear, like, believe in somebody they never heard about? Verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul says, listen, let me tell you, like, from God's perspective, when he is looking at those who've trusted in him, who've aimed their heart's affection at him, and they've aimed their brotherly affection at one another, and this begins to spill over in everyday life, and they begin to take this message to their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers, even their adversaries. God's perspective is like, look at how beautiful their feet are. When you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is there giving a commission to his disciples. Guys, here's your marching orders. After I'm gone, here's what you're to do. Okay, tell us, what do you want us to do? He said, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go. And you're going to make disciples of the nations. 
Wait a second, we're disciples, that's right. You, my disciples, go make disciples. Okay, what do you want us to tell them? Well, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's a lot, yeah, spend time with them, disciple them, teach them, and oh, by the way, make sure you teach them this, go and make disciples. And then those disciples will what? Go and make disciples. That's, that's why you're here today. You know that, right? Soul Rock Church has only been around since like 82, 83. But you, you are part of the lineage, right, of the church because somebody went. But if you look at Matthew 28, the command isn't to go. The command is to make disciples. Another way you could translate that would be as you go, make disciples disciples as you are scattered in persecution make disciples go back and read acts 8 and look at what happens by the end of chapter 8 there are multiple people who have become christians because as as the christians were scattered why were they scattered because saul was ravaging the church as they went they proclaimed the message and guess what happened people were saved people are calling on the name of the lord and being saved as you go as you go to work tomorrow morning, as you go to Starbucks, as you get gas, as you do your walk with your dog around the neighborhood, as you sit at your cubicle and that work friend or person keeps coming by and talking to you, as you are going day by day, your everyday lives. Like this is the only way they're going to be saved. There isn't a plan B, church. That's it. That's what, what Paul's saying. Yeah, I got a t-shirt. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul's like, I love that t-shirt. But how are they going to call on somebody they never even heard? Like, who's willing to share that? And how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim and preach the good news? So we go back to Acts 2, and we have a better understanding of what was happening. I mean, from day one, verse 41 says, 47 says this, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That simple phrase makes more sense now, right? Praising God, having favor with all the people, and what's the Lord doing? Adding to their number day by day. Not Sunday by Sunday, day by day. Not mission event by mission event or mission trip by mission trip, day by day right? These lives that were just infiltrated with this mission for Christ. The day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Their worship fueled their love for one another. And out of that was fueled this, this, this mindset, this missional perspective on the world. One of, um, I would say, one of the leading pastors and theologians um, in this area of the connection between our worship and living the mission is um, John Piper. Some of you may have heard his sermons or read his books. He's actually done a lot of work on this, and he has a sermon that uh, you can get from his website. It's titled, Missions Exists Because Worship Doesn't. And so the idea is this, that you were created to worship, right? But not everybody believes and not everybody's in Christ, so we need a mission, so more people can be invited into the kingdom of God. But missions won't exist in eternity. Worship will. And the reason missions exist is because worship doesn't exist yet in all the corners of the earth. And so he says this, listen to his words. Worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. It's the goal and it's the fuel. Missions exist 
because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all, and that is why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. What we do in here matters, but if what we do in here does not compel us and springboard us towards the nations, we've missed it. And I would even question the sincerity and the authenticity of my own worship if I am not compelled to live the mission in my everyday lives. Like, we can't go do the mission without worship. But if our worship is not propelling us to mission, each of us needs to take a step back and say, man, is my, is my worship really authentic and sincere or am I just going through the motion? Because this should be doing something to me. This should be compelling something in me. It should be stirring something in me. Knowing Jesus leads, first of all, to a heart of worship. If we don't have that, we don't need to talk missions. And we need to take, take a step back and ask, do I really know Jesus? Knowing Jesus leads to a heart of worship. A heart of worship leads to a missional heart, a heart for others. A missional heart leads to a set of missional lenses through which you see the world. And this is big. Like this, for some of you, will be your takeaway. When you start living your life on mission in an everyday basis, your world, like the people around you, aren't going to change significantly. You're just going to be able to see them with a different set of lenses. And you're going, oh, that's why God put you in my life. Like, that's why we've been working together for seven years, and that's why you're my neighbor. That's why. Like, like God's already putting that mission field around you. Ephesians 2.10 says what? That God prepares good works in advance, that you and I should walk into them. Like, walking through a dark room at night and just bumping into them. Like, you, you don't go out and make it happen. You're just simply seeing the world differently. So this, right, this heart of worship that comes from knowing Jesus will lead to a missional heart for others, and that will lead to a set of lenses. Now when my feet hit the floor, I just look at everything differently. I'm much more intentional. I, I want to know what my barista's name is, and who my waiter's name is, and I want to know who my neighbor is, and I, wanna, I want them to know that I'm, I'm willing to help if they need help and serve if they need something from me. Ultimately, for what purpose? that the word of God may increase, that the disciples might increase and continue growing. With a set of missional lenses, it will lead you and I to a lifestyle where we're intentionally building relationships with the people around us for the purpose of introducing people to Jesus. Like that's what it will lead to. That's the pattern. That's what's happening in Acts. Now, for a lot of us here today, we stop right here and you're like, okay, I get it. Yeah, I feel that. I feel convicted. I feel compelled. But I don't know what to do with it. Like, I don't know how to go from where I'm at right now, the sense that I want to be a part of that mission, but like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do this practically. What we want to do for you, rather than just bring us to this point of conviction and say, hey, good luck, go get them. Like, we want to give you practical tools. One of the things that we're going to give to you, if you want, um, is a book called A Field Guide for Everyday Mission. 
30 days and 101 ways to demonstrate the gospel. There are many other books out there. This is not the one. It's not the Bible. It's got a lot of Bible in it, but this is just one that we've used here. And it's a very practical way to build a bridge between, okay, now I'm convicted, Romans 10, I gotta go, I gotta say something, and now I don't know how to start that conversation. And so this is just a book of ideas of how to like live your faith out practically day by day. If you want a copy of this, does anybody want a copy of this? Okay, this is the last one. I'm gonna leave it right there for you. Um, stop at the welcome desk because so many took some in the first service. Uh, we're gonna get you a copy. We just need your name, okay? Just name and contact info. Um, our mission team wants to put a copy of that in the hands, one per household, um, but in, in your hands if you need it and want it. Just a, a practical way to live missionally on a daily basis. All right, so I want to land here um, and just say, like, here's my heart through this whole series. Like, I love what we do in here, okay? I love our time together. We aim our hearts up at God. I even love the way that I watch you aim your hearts at one another, um, before the first service started, I think it's when it was this morning, I was back here, I think with Nick and a couple of others, and I was like, man, the people are just so kind today. There's just like a kindness in the air today that I just really love. But you guys understand, if we just keep that to ourselves, we're going to grow stagnant. We're going to get on each other's nerves. That joy is going to begin to wane. Our worship's just going to become lip service. Right, the point of all that is that it would stir us and compel us to live the mission. Okay, and so my prayer for us as a church is that we haven't gone through this series in vain. We didn't just go through this series and go, oh, that was a really great idea. Let's move on to the book of Genesis. No, like, God, what are you telling us? How can we make adjustments personally and as a church? And my prayer is, listen, church, I'm just, this is what I'm praying for, and this is what I'm expecting God to do, because this is what I want, believe God wants to do. He wants us to be known in this community, not for our new building, not for a new sign, not for our Facebook page, not for the bumper stickers on our cars. Listen, we want to be known in this community for the change that happens, to see this community flipped upside down to where everybody has to take notice. God's up to something over there. Like, like, that's what we want to be known for. That you and I, as members of this church, would live this mission in our everyday lives. So that's what I'm going to pray to that end. If you've got a need in your life and you want prayer, um, would you come grab a prayer partner? If you're watching online or listening, even if it's later in the week, if you'll just click on the prayer tab and let us know what's going on, we want to, we want to join you in prayer and praying for you and over whatever's going on. If you've got a question about the church, um, our elders will be out in the commons area after the service, and we'd love to talk with you, meet you, especially if you're new here, just answer any questions about the church that we can. Um, we're going to pray together, and our worship team is going to come out and lead us in a time of, of worship, to aim our hearts at God, right, so that we'll be ready to leave here and aim our hearts at the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this convicting time in your word. Um, it's exciting to read about all that you were up to in the book of Acts. Uh, but it gets really convicting when we read Paul's words in Romans 10 and he begins to commission us to this task of taking the message out. And so, Father, I, I know that, that in our church, even in my own life and heart, there are oftentimes barriers, fears, insecurities, things that keep me from living this mission out in my everyday life. 
And so, so God, our prayer is that your Holy Spirit would, would really stir in this congregation, would stir in this church. We're not just simply praying for revival, God. We're praying for alignment. That what we read about in the book of Acts would become normative among us. And that we would expect nothing less than, than your word to increase and your, your disciples to increase and your church to grow. Father, I pray now your spirit would stir in us, convict us. God, there's more than likely somebody here who walked in today just wounded and broken. And right now, mission is the last thing on their mind. And and God, I just pray for that person right now. God, they would lean into the church. They would lean into us and let us meet them where they are and pray with them over anything going on in their lives. And maybe somebody here today, God, doesn't even know you. They're like, oh, I want to be on this mission, but I don't even know God. And so maybe that would be... Father, what you're up to in that person's life today, God, I pray that you would draw that person to yourself. If that's you and I'm praying for you right now, I'm just gonna encourage you to grab one of our prayer partners and say, listen, I wanna know how to become a Christian. I'm telling you, God will meet you today. So Father, now we're gonna stand to worship. We pray that, God, you would be exalted, that we would make much of you, that we'd aim our hearts at you. And out of our worship, God, you would compel us to live this mission in our everyday lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.